So I'm going to begin this morning by reading a, our well-known Palm Sunday passage. Uh, Donnie already read from part of John. I'm going to read from Matthew. This isn't going to be our main passage, but this is going to be the one I want to start with because I think there's something for us to see here. So Matthew chapter 21, starting verse 1, says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Like I said, this is our well-known passage that many of us are familiar with, and we see this crowd surround Jesus, right, as he comes into Jerusalem. And they're shouting, Hosanna, right, which is translated as, save us. We often read this and we think, those people finally truly recognize who Jesus is right? We've been studying the Gospel of John, and all we've seen so far in the Gospel of John is people who just can't seem to get it. They just can't recognize fully who Jesus is, and we tend to think, finally now, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, riding on the donkey, that it makes sense now. They finally are understanding Jesus as the king he's supposed to be. But look at verse 11. When they say, who is this, what do they say? This is a prophet, They don't say this is the king, although they may have related the the word prophet to a hint of Messiah from the Old Testament, right? That it says king in the passage that's quoted from Zechariah chapter 9. We see that their Hosanna, their save us, is politically wrapped in save us from Rome. It's not wrapped in go to the cross and save us from sin. It's politically wrapped in saying you need to save us from these Romans. So I mention this first passage because even a warm welcome for Jesus as king can be done in the wrong way. Because don't forget, by the end of the week, the people who were shouting Hosanna are shouting what? Crucify him. So even people who seem to recognize Jesus as king can do so wrongly and later in the week be shouting, crucify him. Simply calling Jesus prophet and king as he enters into the city is not enough. They needed to understand, really, what type of king is this? Who is Jesus truly? And that's important for us to realize as we celebrate Palm Sunday today. Ask yourself for your own life, What kind of king do I want? 
or if you're truly honest with yourself, our sinful hearts say, who's king? I am. Our sinful flesh says, I get to be king. So really you have two issues in front of you. First of all, do you want a king? Do you want someone other than yourself to be the one guiding your life? And second of all, what kind of king do you want, if you can even say yes to that first question? Don't be deceived into thinking that just because you call Jesus king, that all is well. You must see Jesus as the king for who he truly is, which is what we end up seeing here, is that Jesus is the king of everything that we are not. Everything that we're unable to be in and of ourselves. So what we're going to do this morning is this little Old Testament passage quoted in Matthew chapter 21 is going to be our text for today. It's literally two verses about the coming king, but we're going to, we're going to look at it in its context, so we're going to have to really play this out as history progresses. So we're going to have to look at what did this king mean to Israel when Zechariah first mentioned it in the Old Testament? What does this king look like in the fulfillment of Jesus as this king? What does that mean for us now? And in verse 10, we get to a couple things that happen in the future, right? So there's kind of four different perspectives that we might have to look at along the way. So we're going to read Our passage this morning is Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of of the earth. So we literally only have two things that I'm splitting this morning into. We're talking about behold the king and then how we're to respond to that king. We find out here from the beginning in verse 9 that Zechariah is addressing Israel, right? He says, O daughter of Zion, O daughter of Jerusalem, right? He's talking about a specific city, right? Jerusalem. So he's saying those who belong to this city, those who are children of the city, those who are God's people, right? This is who he's speaking to. This is who he's addressing. And what's happened, if you know Israel's history, right? We know that Israel had set up their king, Right, with Saul, David, Solomon, the kingdom splits, right? We have Israel and we have Judah who each have their own kings. And then eventually both those kingdoms are taken into exile, one by Assyria, one by Babylon, right? Assyria first, then Babylon takes over Assyria and then takes the other nation in. And then Persia takes over Babylon. And then Persia finally allows some of Israel to return back to Jerusalem. That's where we're at right now. Zechariah is part of the group of people that have been allowed to return to Jerusalem. But there's a problem. Persia's at war. So even though they've been allowed to return home, Persia says, we need to tax you incredibly high to fund the war that we're in the midst of. 
So Israel still, even in the midst of returning home to Jerusalem, is longing for this day when they are going to be freed from the power of Persia. They're longing for this day of judgment when the surrounding nations will finally receive their due and they will be lifted up once again in victory. So this news that Zechariah says here, this coming king is met with excitement from these people. Right? Especially, we, if you were to read verses 1 through 8, we find out that it talks about all the nations, all the enemies of Israel being judged. So now imagine being Israel hearing this, all of your enemies are going to be judged, and then a king comes to you. There's this rising excitement, anticipation, this hope in the midst of them as they wait for this. Imagine it being like how excited America was when we put George Washington as our president. Right? We had this enemy that we finally had gained freedom from, and now we finally had our own leader. This is Israel. Finally, we're going to have our king again. Finally, we're going to be freed from our enemies but we find out it's not just any king. God goes on through the prophet Zechariah to describe this king, and this is what I want to sit on for a while this morning, is some of these qualities of this king that we find here. The first thing we find out is that this is a righteous king. This king is just. He executes judgment rightly, correctly, fairly. He's not corrupt. He doesn't take bribes. He doesn't lower the bar for anybody. Right? For Israel, this is great news. When's the last time they had a king like this? Maybe David? I mean, the kingdom had split, and only Judah, the southern kingdom, had even had any good kings after the split. The northern kingdom of Israel had said only had evil kings. And Judah only had a handful of ones who were even slightly described as righteous. And certainly their recent experience, they had no righteous kings, right? With Assyria and Babylon and Persia now. They had three nations worth of exile to deal with. So we can see why their excitement is stirred up. Finally, a righteous king who's going to give judgment on our enemies. And we see the same mentality carries over to Palm Sunday when Jesus enters in. Right? The expectation is Jesus is going to righteously judge Rome. Jesus is finally going to take care of our enemies. But come to find out, they got it wrong. Jesus doesn't arrive in an attempt for political justice. Instead, Jesus comes for spiritual justice. Jesus comes to not deal with political corruption, but spiritual corruption. In fact, we find out that with this coming king in Jesus, righteous does not just describe the judgments that Jesus makes. Righteous describes the very essence of who this king is. Jesus is truly righteous in and of himself, not just the judgments that he makes. He himself is holy and perfect. Which is great news, even better news for Israel, for the Jewish people, for us. Because remember what I said, Jesus is everything that we're not. 
So not only is Jesus dealing out righteous judgments, but Jesus is righteous in and of himself. He is holy, he is perfect, he is righteous. And guess what? You're not. In fact, if Jesus were to execute his righteous judgment on you and me, it's nothing but wrath. Your only hope in the midst of your own unrighteousness, is that somehow you receive righteousness. Somehow you receive a political judgment, right? This legal judgment that you are innocent. Your only chance, though, is not that you can make yourself righteous, but that someone else's righteousness is given to you. Because guess what? Even if you were perfectly righteous for the rest of your life, your unrighteousness in the past will still determine you guilty. So no matter how righteous you try to be, you're never going to be perfect, which means we need someone else's righteousness, which leads us to Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Your sin, your unrighteousness left you helpless without Jesus. But Jesus, as the righteous one, dies for your unrighteousness. Now those who trust in him, those who trust in his death, his blood, who trust in the cross, are justified. That word literally means declared to be righteous. So those who trust in Jesus are now determined to be righteous. So this king in Zechariah, this king of Palm Sunday, is not only the king who gives righteous judgments, but he is the king who is righteous in and of himself. And that is our only hope, to not be under condemnation ourselves. But we find out he's not just a righteous king, we find out he is a saving king. Right? It says, righteous and having salvation is he. Which we can understand, even in a political realm, why this would be a good thing. Just think of our election this past year. How much of that election was bound up in, I'm going to save you from the coronavirus? Right? I have a plan that is going to protect you, a plan that is going to save you. There is a salvation mentality on the political platform. So we can understand, even for Israel, why this was their great desire. Theirs wasn't COVID, but theirs was a political enemy right? that they had been exiled by. Desperate to be saved from these enemies. Desperate to be saved from these surrounding nations. They thought, we need a king who's going to lead our military and give us a full rescue. And it's the same mentality when Jesus arrives on Palm Sunday. Again, people are shouting, Hosanna, right? Literally meaning, save us. And we're just told this king has salvation, so it makes sense. But we see that their thoughts of salvation... For hundreds of years, right? They've been clinging to this promise of this king is going to save us, but yet Jesus goes in a completely different direction. Jesus skips the military, right? Jesus ends up eating with the drunkards and the tax collectors. 
Jesus ends up calling the religious leaders a brood of vipers and saying, you're children of the devil. So clearly, this military king is not what Jesus is. Jesus didn't come to overtake Rome, but he comes as a spiritual king to deliver them from sin. His rescue, his salvation, his mission isn't a military mission, but it's a humanity mission. So for us, if our greatest problem, as we just saw with the righteousness, is our greatest problem is our unrighteousness, then our salvation ceases to be an external salvation. You get what I'm saying here? It's not that we have to be saved from something outside of us. But Jesus as king, first and foremost, gives you salvation from yourself. Right? We live in a culture that says your internal experience, your internal feelings is your true identity of who you are. Everything you feel internally should be celebrated and should be followed to the fullest extent. But let me remind you of what the prophet Jeremiah tells us. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You catch this here? The judgment that the Lord makes on us, which is judging our way, our deeds, right, our works, is done by the Lord searching our hearts and our minds. And right there he told us the core problem of humanity is that our hearts are desperately sick. We are deceiving ourselves. We are believing lies about ourselves, about the world around us, about who God is. Contemporary psychology would say all of your wrong actions are done as a product of your environment, are done because of the way that you've been influenced by the people around you, by the things that go on around you. But let me remind you of how Jesus described sin in Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. This whole list of sins that our world would say you only do these wrong things because of the product of what's influenced around you Jesus says you do it because there's something wrong inside of you. There's a heart that is deceitful. There's a heart that is sick. And that's what flows all of this sin. So let's take a couple examples. When you come home for the day, and you've had a bad day, but you lash out in anger at your spouse or your kids, 
you're not lashing out because you had a bad day. It's not simply the external's fault as to why you're responding in anger. It's because in your heart, you're king. And when anything doesn't go according to your plan as you being king, you have the right to get angry. Or, when you run into a person at the store and they start slandering so-and-so down the road, you don't participate in slander out of politeness. You participate in slander because you believe a lie that you're the one who gets to cast judgments on people or because you believe it's going to make you feel better about yourself by tearing down somebody else. Your greatest problem is not the external, it's yourself. The sin inside your own heart. But Jesus as king brings salvation. Better salvation than anything external, but an internal salvation. Jesus saves you not only from the wrath to come, but he saves you even here and now from the power of sin over your own heart. That you can, as you trust in Jesus, you can choose now. You are freed to choose now to not sin anymore. Before Jesus, your heart only wanted to choose sin. And as you trust in Jesus, you now can choose not to sin. You can now choose a way that's pleasing to God. So we have Jesus as the saving king. Righteous king, saving king. Next we see Jesus as the humble king. This is the part of Zechariah we're so familiar with, isn't it? In verse 9. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We've grown so accustomed to this, it might lose the shock factor when we actually take this in context. For Israel, imagine yourself hearing this. God says, I'm giving you a king. Yes. What's he going to do? He's going to be righteous. Yes. What else is he going to do? He's going to save you. Yes. What else is he going to do? He's going to come mounted on a colt of a donkey. What? Kings don't ride on donkeys. They ride on big horses, right? There's no need for a donkey. If he's going to be bringing military salvation, he needs a bigger horse than that, right? Imagine it in our world, right? You have the whole military lined up, right? You have planes and you have tanks and you have these machine guns. And then here comes the big general riding up on a moped. Who wants that? Who wants that kind of leader? Humility to say the least, was not Israel's strong point. And we can see that when Jesus arrives on Palm Sunday, this this whole idea has lost its significance. That even though when they see Jesus riding on a donkey, this verse from Zechariah comes to their minds. They're not thinking, we want a humble king. They're thinking, we associate this donkey king with the salvation and the righteousness that he's supposed to be dishing out. Not not anything to do. They've neglected the humility factor here. That's not what they're excited about. Yet when we get to Jesus and we see Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, we see that humility is significant for Jesus' life. Right? Just look at Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 5.
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humility is significant for Jesus. In fact, counting others more significant than himself. Jesus taking the low place and emptying himself of all of these privileges as the Son of God and taking on the form of a man and becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross is exactly what ends up leading to your salvation. You need a king who is humble because it's only in humility that Jesus ends up at the cross, right? Verse 8 says that. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so for us, Jesus' teaching is for us to follow in this humility. Right? Philippians just told us, you are to have this same mind among you that is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus tells us in the Gospels, right? He says, whoever wants to be first should be last. Or, we see elsewhere in James, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humility is meant for us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to follow in the footsteps of this humble king. Honestly, if the first two realities we just talked about are true, that you are unrighteous and that you need saved from sin inside of you, what other option do you have? You have two options in front of you. You can be proud and arrogant and walk away from God, or you can humble yourself before God, admitting that your only hope for salvation is Jesus. And by humility, we don't mean a casual confession here, right? We don't mean, hey God, I'm sorry, let's move on for the day. Humility means a constant, a daily submission of yourself to God. Not degrading yourself, right? Not talking as if you have no value, but by putting yourself in your proper place in comparison to putting God and Jesus in their proper place. Realizing that Jesus is king, not me any longer. So I'm going to humbly come before him each and every day. Submit myself to him through prayer, through studying the word. I'm going to submit myself to this king. Your daily mentality is to be one of serving, serving Christ and serving the people around you. So we have a humble king. We then get into verse 10 where we see some elements of future things start to take place. We come to the peacemaking king. We see a shift here in the verb tenses, right? Your king is coming. He has salvation, right? But now we have, I will cut off the chariot. The war horse, the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace.
peace to the nations. Right? So we're going to connect these things of these are future fulfillments that are going to fully take place, but also have present consequences for us. But notice here what the promise is, right? This king will speak peace to the nations. It says, God says, I'm going to get rid of all the weapons of war, and this king is going to have peace among all the groups of people. So imagine being Israel, right? Peace has long been absent in their lives. When's the last time that they had true peace from the nations? Maybe Abraham in Genesis and some of his descendants, right? Because then we see that Israel ends up under Egypt, and then they go in the wilderness, and then they come into, with Joshua, come into to do their conquest and defeat the enemies. But even in the midst of defeating some of the enemies, there's still other enemies. Then they set up kings who have to fight enemies. And then we find out that there's other, other kings who are taken into exile by enemies. They've had enemies their entire existence from coming out of Egypt. And now there's this promise of peace. And it goes and connects with the promise to Abraham, right? God told Abraham, through you all nations are going to be blessed. And now we have this idea of peace, this global peace in the midst of Israel dealing with the nations. And we can imagine the same thing when Jesus shows up, right? That the people are expecting peace with the nations, but they think peace for them means they get victory, right? We're in charge. That's what peace means. Yet we see with Jesus that peace is first and foremost vertical before it is horizontal. Jesus establishes peace as vertical before it's ever horizontal. Go back to Romans chapter 5. Verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As Christ's death gives righteousness to the unrighteous, it's only by those means that then we are allowed as former sinners to now be at peace with God. For you and me, whether we want to admit it or not, when we were living in our unrighteousness, when we were consumed with our sin, we were hostile towards God. Scripture actually uses that word to describe us. You had no desire to even consider peace with God, right? This was your kingdom. Nobody was going to tell you how to run your kingdom. But when you recognize how glorious Jesus is and how dirty you are, you see the need for peace. And you see Jesus as the only means to get that peace. You know, we've been, we've been going through a phase of life with Sadie where it's like, no matter what happens every day, probably a hundred times she says, I'm sorry. I mean, and it... It's a common thing for her to say she's sorry for something that she didn't even do. Like, she'll wake up in the morning and she'll be like, I'm sorry for getting mad last night. You didn't even get mad last night. Like, you, you didn't even, there was no element of anger in our conversation last night. Why? But it shows that in the depths of Sadie's heart, she desires this peace between her and mom and dad. Right? That she, 
she wants to cover all of her bases, even if it's something that didn't happen. I want to make sure I say I'm sorry for it, right? The beauty of who Jesus is is that he makes peace between two parties that seem unable to be reconciled to each other. You have a holy, perfect, righteous God and unrighteous, only deserving of wrath sinners. And Jesus makes peace between the two. And even better than that, the peace that we can have now with God, right? That peace is available to you now. That peace is going to find its full fulfillment one day in the future. When one day all nations are at peace. All nations are under the rule of this King, Jesus. Which brings us to our last quality of this king, which is the ruling king. Again, in verse 10, he shall rule, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Which are really just beautiful ways of saying everywhere. So for Israel, we can figure that they probably were really excited about this, Right? There's a day of total dominance for this king. And a similar attitude when Jesus shows up, right? The Jewish people are saying, there's going to be a day when nobody messes with us anymore. Even the disciples, right, right before Jesus ascends into heaven in Acts 1 say, is this the day when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But as we've seen so far, Jesus' rule is so much better than some political thing. It will one day be that, but it's so much deeper than that. It's not just an external rule. As Jesus makes peace by humbling himself as the righteous one to save the unrighteous people, those who truly trust in Jesus, he now rules our hearts. Jesus as king, as this king, means Jesus must rule your heart, your soul, Everything inside of you. Let me read Ephesians 4 just to describe this for you. Verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Did you catch it there? Your old self includes not just your external way of life, but it includes the desires of your heart. And those who have put themselves under Christ's rule now are renewed in our minds, internal, and made into the likeness of God, righteous and holy. Your desires are different. Your thoughts are different. Your commitments are different. Your values are different. Because Christ rules your heart now. You find yourself who once struggled with anger now find yourself being able to be patient. If you once struggled with greed, you now find contentment. If you once struggled with pessimism, now you find hope in situations. And all of it's done by the power of this king, Jesus. And then one day we're going to see the full fulfillment of this. 
Now he rules in our hearts. One day he will rule everything. But until that day comes, we humble ourselves before this God, before this Jesus, before our King. So there you have it, church. There's who this king is from Zechariah chapter 9. Now let me ask you the question. Is this the king you want? I want to just end really quickly by jumping back up to verse 9. In realizing who this king is, God through Zechariah calls his people to respond a certain way. Rejoice greatly. Shout aloud. The expectation is that the arrival of this king stirs emotions in those hearing about this king. The truth of this king's righteousness, the salvation that he brings, the humility he comes in, the peace that he gives, and the rule that he is going to have, all are meant to lead people to have joy. And not just joy, it says rejoice greatly, an exceedingly amount of joy. As Jesus is seen by us on Palm Sunday as fulfilling all of these things as this king, what do you feel towards Jesus? If you feel nothing about this king as he arrives, as we study his arrival, if you don't feel anything towards him, do you really know him? If you don't feel anything in the depths of who you are, if you don't feel any joy, let alone exceeding amounts of joy at this king's arrival, do you really know him? And why would the world want him? If we as God's people don't even rejoice with the king that we see, why would the world want him? Why would the world look at us and say, I want that when we are a joyless people? Or even take it a step further. Look at what it says. Rejoice greatly. Shout aloud. When's the last time you felt so much joy about who Jesus is as king that you wanted to shout about it? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the king who comes stirring true joy in the hearts of those who believe in him. So on Palm Sunday, as he comes as the righteous king, saving people from their sin, as he humbles himself, even to the point of dying on the cross, for the sake of the unrighteous, so that those unrighteous can have peace with God as Christ rules in their hearts and lives. Church, do you see this king this morning? Do you want this Jesus as your king? Do you feel anything towards him? Does your heart surge with joy? Church, this is your king. This is your Jesus. The righteous one, the saving one, the humble one, the peacemaking one, and the ruling one. I invite you this morning to rejoice in him with your entire being, with all of who you are, find an exceedingly amount of joy in him. May our hearts surge with joy this morning at the sight, at the recognition of our King Jesus. Let's pray.